Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin and Anna Tashinsky. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that pedestrians used to be expected to give way to sedan chairs. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they're the e-scooters of their day. They couldn't have been more so from are, everything I've read about. Are pedestrians them. still expected to give way to sedan chairs, but just there aren't any sedan chairs, so it doesn't matter. Oh, like legally. It's a really yeah. good question. We'll have to, well, I guess we have to set it up with one of us. Uh, well, it would require three of us to have a sedan chair and then one of us to find a policeman to arrest. Well, no, no. We only need one <laughs> sedan chair and two people to lift it we need yeah, three people that's what i mean three oh, i people. thought you said a sedan chair each no 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 so we'll need three people one <laughs> sedan chair and then one of us to be the pedestrian who doesn't give way oh well i'll be the p- pedestrian please can I'll i be, be the, the person in the chair, oh, in the chair. shotgun in the chair <laughs> <laughs> right, front front i got the front <laughs> <laughs> what a joke <laughs> Sorry, James. Uh, Anyway, this was, yeah, the rules of the road, or in fact, the rules of the pavement in the great sedan chair (laughs) era, which is quite a short era, really. And just in case you're unfamiliar with the sedan concept, it's obviously a chair that one person's sitting on and then it's attached to sort of pole railings and those are held by one person at each end and you're walked around the street in this chair. And normally there's a box around the chair, we should say. Yeah. Yeah. There are some rough and ready sedan chairs where it's literally just a chair and you're being carried. Those are quite cool. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) There were military sedan chairs uh-huh. or for camp expeditions, and it's literally just a chair with some handles that fold out. Right. And you that's wouldn't, it. You wouldn't have thought it's that useful in a sort of a, a military <laughs> assault, would you? It's no tank, <laughs> the sedan chair. It's free. It's before the battle. Okay, right. The chair. <laughs> Galloping in on the sedan chair. <laughs> Over the lip of a hill, thousands of sedan chairs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, anyway, yeah, there were quite uh, there were quite strict rules about how they could be used. So it was in 1634, I think, that they really kicked off in the UK. They came over from Europe, and a guy called Sir Saunders Duncombe got a bunch of licenses <laughs> to hire out some sedan chairs. And the great thing about them was they were allowed to go on the pavements. Much like scooters, and this much like scooters, this really irritated pedestrians. Uh, but the rule was that pedestrians had to get out of the way, and the men on the who would be carrying the sedan chairs, and it was usually men, obviously, would just shout, you know, "By your leave!" as they approached, or sometimes ruder things, according but to some accounts. I thought that it was very polite. I thought a sedan chair would be making its way leisurely to you, and no, they would say it. You'd no. pause. These guys were bolting down the yeah. street. Yeah, really? Like, yeah, that's the thing. If you didn't move, you weren't sort of in a standoff. You were just mowing over that's why i think it's like this was the rule but it was kind of an unwritten rule i reckon right Mm -hmm. because and the reason it was unwritten was because if you didn't get out of the way you would get smashed yeah yeah they could be quite uh quite violent i always thought that sedan chairs were pretty much in the way that you might if you were in london these days you know getting a rickshaw in the middle of the night like Mm. it was just a a thing of convenience which was really nice but actually they were really practical they were particularly practical for people whose legs you know had problems who who couldn't walk and so on and Sedan chairs weren't just for the outside. You had indoor sedan chairs, which I just didn't think of. So you could get you could get from your room downstairs and have a wash, go out. And be I think it was in. it was usually the same sedan chair, right? What they yeah. would do is they would change the poles, so they would have shorter poles when you were doing the indoor bits, wow. and then they would give you longer ones for the outdoors. So they were really popular in Bath, in the city of Bath. They were like Dan said, because you could use them indoors. You could literally be picked up from your bed in your lodgings. You could be carried to the bath waters, which were regenerative. Mm. You could be put into the waters and then picked back up. <laughs> again and taken back to your bed and put into your bed and these guys the chairman who would take you they would also strip you and cover you in blankets so they would take off your night clothes put you in blankets put you in the sedan chair take you to the bath put you in and then put you back as you were like being a baby yeah, yeah. basically like i just think a... uber should bring this in <laughs> i don't want i think workers rights might have got to a place it's a bit like a hover wheelchair isn't it like you're if you yeah, think about it's, it it's, it's like you know not hovering no wheels it's just like you know an old an old like the concept it's a hovering if chair. you imagine the the men who are carrying you aren't there yeah then yeah. it is isn't it yeah. imagine you... they are the wheels the men are the wheels they for... were so they were mostly for the higher society yes. obviously because you had to pay fares uh to ride in them and so they had great fixtures like they tended to have hinged roofs 
roofs, especially as hairstyles got bigger, so that people's hair, big no. um, hairstyles could fit out on the top, or headdresses, or top hats. I saw a drawing as well, which, again, it's done in that style where you kind of wonder, is this being satirical, or is this is this being real? But you can see the hinge on the top of the roof, and this giant wig coming out. Now, obviously, one of the problems is, if what if it's raining, or what if there's a light drizzle, you're obviously going to get your wig wet. So the person on behind, in James's position, um, they have on their back a sort of huge pole that comes up with an umbrella on the top that then yeah. sits over That's I think it's funny. a satirical drawing yeah, it, sadly. but it kind of makes sense that you would do that I would say yeah yeah I think I think from the attitudes of the chairman I can gather their vibe would be your hair can bloody well get wet madam <laughs> have you um, so there was there was a thing as sedan chair sickness oh yeah so it was a big th- sedan chairs were huge in China too um, mm. and in Hong Kong as well um and seasickness was known as sedan chair sickness because that was the best example they had. Mm. I think more people might have experienced sedan chairs than the ocean. No way. Yeah. So you went out to sea and you suffered from sedan chair sickness? Oh, possibly. I don't know if they called it that when they were at sea. Oh, I, was thought, a... I thought you were saying that was what they called seasickness. I think if you're a salty old sea dog, you're <laughs> yeah. probably still called it seasickness. Yeah. yeah. But Wait, I think I'm most confused. people I think most people would have said, oh, I've got a sedan chair sickness because oh, it feels like I've been in a sedan chair if they had motion sickness. If they'd been on the waltzes or whatever, I see. they would think of it as sedan chair sickness. Oh, okay. But cures, cures included drinking the urine of young boys. Oh, God. Which yeah. does seem to crop up quite a lot in ancient cures. Was yeah. that in, would you get a little vial of that in the sedan chair? For Just a nice you felt one. it coming on, yeah. What, like when the Uber driver has a bottle of water in the back of Sedan Lux. Yeah, or bringing some earth from your kitchen floor for protection. Again. Well, that was how they used to treat seasickness, I think we've said before, right? Ah, yeah. so it must have been the urine of young boys for the sedan chair <laughs> only. Okay. <laughs> also, taxi drivers get annoyed if you get their um, cars dirty. So if you bring earth into a car, and so similarly with the sedan chair, they used to, they were able to charge passengers for any mess that was made. Yeah. So right. I think if you dumped a bunch of earth in the chair... Or if you drank some young boy's urine <laughs> and then vomited it back up. <laughs> but that's presumably fine, because they're the ones who introduced the boys urine into the Did yeah I? just don't spill it and um, i really like it how when it got to night time the sedan chair the price would then double on top of all these other fees <laughs> oh, yeah. that you had it would double it kind of makes sense because you needed one extra member of of the the vehicle as it were oh, yeah which was the uh the link boy uh who would oh, yeah. be standing in front of the sedan chair with a torch yeah. lighting the way like a big old headlight yeah. just yeah. you know so cool yeah and it, it was um i read a thing about that it was very dark and jolting in the sedan because there are these just slight gaps of light where the curtains are or whatever where you see the torch and at the end of the journey the link boy would thrust their flambeau into your trumpet shaped extinguisher how cool is that yeah that was if you paid extra though wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and those extinguishers you still see them in houses sometimes don't you I walked past yeah. the building yesterday yeah. and I saw this weird iron trumpet on the outside and it was for them to stick the torch up oh, and yeah. it extinguishes it that's great how cool if you ever that? need to put out a candle in London <laughs> and you, you happen to be in the right place you can do it it's quite yeah. shishi buildings it's not Yes. This was in, you know, Piccadilly or somewhere. Yeah. If yeah. look, if you live in one of those buildings, you can probably afford a torch, so you won't need to put the candle out. In there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the world record longest journey in a sedan chair. Oh. I'm not sure if it's still the world record, um, but this was in 1728. It was Princess Amelia, who's the daughter of King George II, uh, and she was carried from London to Bath. In a sedan chair. So far. Wow. It's a long way. She must have got through so much young boy's urine on the way. (laughs) They have like service stations where you can get some young boy's urine, (laughs) some drive throughs and stuff. Um, It's 172 kilometers, and she did it with eight chairmen working in turn. And they had a coach that was going alongside them that they would jump in and out of, and then they would carry her. Who was it who did this? Princess Amelia. So an actual princess? Yeah, daughter of George II. Wow. It wouldn't be your average pleb, would it? No, no, of course. But what this reminds me of, every so often there's a news story today, which is like, this drunk person got an Uber yeah. 200 yeah. miles yes. and it's basically that that was the first thing I thought of as well. but she was really kind of quite unpopular Princess Amelia um, she famously closed Richmond Park to anyone apart from her friends bastard in London um, and so you had to get a ticket to go to Richmond Park and you had to get it from Princess Amelia you couldn't get it from anywhere else and so for instance there was a guy oh called um, Lord Brooke who asked her for a ticket 
and he said, can I have a ticket to Richmond Park? And she said, I denied one to the Lord Chancellor. I'm hardly going to give one to you. Ouch. (laughs) And there was like a huge sort of right to roam thing. And there was a guy called John Lewis who took her to court saying, I should be allowed into Richmond Park. And in the end, this was in 1758, he won, John Lewis won. And so they had to put ladders up over the walls so that people could get into Richmond Park. But Princess Amelia made it so that the steps in the ladder were too far that people couldn't get (laughs) over them. So they had to go back to court to get them put in. How was she getting getting in? She was, you know, she had her gates that she could go into that were guarded and stuff like that. She didn't have a human trebuchet or something tossing (laughs) (laughs) her But yeah, John Lewis, who did wow. this, he became like a local celebrity and people who lived near Richmond Park would have his painting in their houses because wow. he was so famous for getting wow. people into really? Richmond Park. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah, Princess Amelia. That's Hang on, amazing. so could we say that without the sedan chair, we might not be able to access Richmond Park today? No, well, we it's another one of my talking about someone quite a long way from the actual fact. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only talking about her because she did have the record for the longest sedan chair race. And um, just very quickly on the trip, you said that these guys were jumping out. Yeah, so, yeah. so was it one? Was it like passing a baton? As in, did she ever touch the ground? Do we know, or was it just one journey? That's a really good point. I would imagine she's a princess, right? Mm. Do you reckon it's uncomfortable to be put down and picked up again? Because if it is, they probably did a pass baton pass to yeah. try and make it as good as possible. But for it's, her, it's but... also uncomfortable to 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 walk 170 miles uh, without a piss. So I imagine yeah. she yeah. would have stopped a bit along the way. They yeah, must they'd... have been. Yeah. Hardly any of them had toilets in inside the sedan chair, did they? So for that, that one, really you would build r- that in, wouldn't you? For that long a journey, <laughs> that's a rough gig for the guy at the back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Poor James. Oh no! I, what I'm thinking now is this is just so obvious that this must have happened. You get your free vial of. Um, young boy's urine (laughs) neck it to make you feel better and then you need a piss where are you going to (laughs) go in that vial and then the next person who uses the taxi they're not going to get young boys yeah you're right and they'll if they get the motion sickness badly they'll think i bet that wasn't young boy's urine after all (laughs) (laughs) only Uh, four stars Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that a woman called Mary Papa Nicolau once had a smear test every day for 21 years. (laughs) That is being a hypochondriac. (laughs) That is... I mean, it's quite something, isn't it? Um, no, she was the wife of Dr. Georgios Papanikolaou, uh, who was the guy who invented the pap smear test. And that's why it's called the pap test, because uh, it's named after him. And he needed to do experiments, and it's kind of hard to get people to do experiments. And so he got his wife to do it, and she, unbegrudgingly or maybe a little bit begrudgingly, <laughs> did this for 21 years. Depends on the day, doesn't it? If it's Christmas Day, <laughs> your birthday. Uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> so, and the other thing is that he was a zoologist, really, and he came up with this idea of doing a smear of um, the vagina of a guinea pig, and he could find out when they were menstruating. And so he was kind of doing that experiment on humans, and everyone's like, yeah, but we kind of know when humans are menstruating. It's a bit dumb. There are some obvious signs. There are. There's the odd side here and there. Um, but what <laughs> happened was Mary invited some of her friends to a party. And I don't know how you bring this up in the party, but as part of the party, they all had a smear test. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of her friends was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And Georgios Papanikolaou, he had the smear and he managed to see that there was something in that smear that presaged the fact that she was going to get cervical cancer and that was basically why we have smear tests today he's so brilliant what a hero like he should be a household name well really. she should be as well both, both like, of them should yeah. be yeah the papa nicolaus should uh, be she household. just lay there as the only person among the four of us who's had a smear test it's genuinely not that difficult 21 it, uh, years it's in not a row. very pleasant i understand it's not it's not that pleasant so it's, no. a, it's a sort of little what what is it a little sort of sort of taking of a few cells 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So something a little speculum. I imagine. I, I really want to know who made the tiny speculum for this guy's guinea well, pigs. Well, I can tell you that. So he went to <laughs> he went to a shop and bought a nasal speculum for humans. So a speculum is something that kind of opens up a gap a little bit. Okay. And so he would take the nasal speculum for humans and used it in the vaginas of the guinea pigs. Right. And so what that tells me is that guinea pig's vagina is almost exactly the same size as a human nostril. Ah. Oh, oh well, that's. It's useful knowledge, probably it's somehow. Gonna, it's going to be useful at some point. <laughs> One day, <laughs> can't a pub wait. quiz. Can't One wait day, not a pub quiz. <laughs> well, the pub quiz as I go to. The pub quiz as I set. <laughs> oh my god! I just I, can't see the circle. I want to. I desperately tried. But we have a lot of any. listeners. There's like how many people listening to this show? One day, just let's all. I just... reckon maybe you're going buying some nose plugs, right? Because yeah. you're a swimmer. And you go to the nose plug shop and they say, you're not allowed to put them in your nose before you buy them. And you're like, luckily I have a guinea pig. <laughs> so I can test the size of the guinea pig instead of testing it on myself. And that's the loophole in the chemist rule. But yes. We don't have any rule that says you can't put them in a guinea pig vagina. Oh, I'm seeing it more as like someone's being held captive by an eccentric billionaire. Oh, yeah. And they're like, I'm about to kill you unless you can answer this impossible question. Oh, that's quite good. Help me. I've got another one. So you're being held captive by this guy. Yeah. And he wants to put some poison in your nose. And so what you do is, oh no, I need to put my hockey mask on first. And you put your hockey mask <laughs> on. He's, he begrudgingly says, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, I understand. Fair enough. But then when you've got your mask on, you put a guinea pig where he thinks your nose is. And so he puts the poison in the guinea pig's vagina oh, instead of your nose because he thinks okay. it's your nose. Yeah, yeah that's Very quite good, good. yeah. Anyway, look. The... <laughs> God. Um, Papa Nicolo. Yeah. Um, uh, start so uh, Georgios, the husband. He started working on the guinea pigs during the First World War. I think it was about 1916, maybe mm-hmm. within a year or two either side, because that was the length of the war. Um, <laughs> but it took him so long. He published his landmark work on it during the Second World War. It was 1943 mm-hmm. that the work was published, and that was with a brilliantly named uh, fellow scientist called Herbert Trout. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just on um, very quickly on Trout, Herbert Trout, mm. um, because I know you want to know this. I read his obituary and he loved fishing. Brilliant. Lovely. Good, good really on you, mate. Very good. good. To know. What is truly amazing about this, though, is one article that I read is that in the early 1900s, cervical cancer was the number one cancer killer in women in the USA. And now it's basically the most preventable cancer mm-hmm. up there. I mean, it's extraordinary what mm. this guy's discovery, yeah. along with his wife vagina <laughs> did um, another good name in the history of smears is uh, the sort of simultaneous inventor in yeah. fact um, oral babes which is also stop the- it yeah. stop <laughs> it that's not real I've how do you actually website. pronounce it Anna alright fine I think you probably say it oral babes it's oral babesh oral babesh is uh, the name of the person who was Romanian I think and he also was doing experiments around the same time and sort of came up with a slightly different twist on taking a cervical smear test at the same time oh, right yeah. and yeah and in fact in Romania it's called the Methoda Babesh Papa Nicolau so wow. they give him joint yeah. credit for oh, it cool. he was by the way Babesh he uh, worked with Robert Bunsen of Bunsen Burner fame stop <laughs> yeah. wow he was his pupil that's a, I thought uh, Bunsen Burner were kind of hundreds of years old I thought uh, they went back to the over a hundred years old okay yeah. that is really cool <laughs> so cool God, yeah. so many great names being chucked around I know <laughs> in 2009 Papa Nicolau uh, Georgios again was named the second greatest Greek of all time in a national poll in that, Greece. I mean that's of all the countries that's a biggie Greece isn't it it's it's 100% like, is because they've got a lot of pedigree in there yeah. he was yeah. beaten by one man only was it that guy who did Anassus not Anassis. Oh, well, who's that guy who did all the politics and the and the economics and stuff when they had a? Yeah, was it him? No, oh. I think it should be Yanis, but I think it's Socrates. It's Alexander the Great. Oh, oh. the only oh. Greek voted greater than George. What Papa did Nicolau. the Macedonians think of that vote? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, I really love the speculum uh, as uh, <laughs> said no woman ever <laughs> as, a, as a historical object I don't like it too near me um, but it's it's got a very interesting history so it was invented by this chap called James Sims who was actually a very unsavoury character in pretty much every way oh. uh, at the time people doctors were totally discouraged from looking at women's private parts gynaecologists would be told not to look 
at the affected area and they'd be you know it was they were instructed to sort of blindly fumble around under a lady's skirt and sort of have a little bit of a feel and I think there was even a textbook that suggested either the doctor stare determinedly out into the middle of space <laughs> or look the person in the eye consistently as you're doing it which is better to me which is worse <laughs> But yeah, he, he he didn't like doing it any more than any other of these male doctors at the time. And it was sort of as very unseemly. Uh, but he did say one time this poor girl came to him with a fistula, a really bad fistula. And he said, this girl was in such a condition that I was obliged to find out what was the matter with her. And so we started investigating ways to see into the vagina. And he tried a bent handle of a gravy spoon. Oh, crumbs. At first. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it was clean before it was eaten off again. Uh, not Not clear on the details there. Um, but it was really controversial even after he came up with the speculum lots of people refused to use it in case it corrupted people in yeah. case women got very proud by case, it in case it was just too uh, damn sexy <laughs> it was exactly that and the thing about Sims that's really controversial is that he did a lot of experiments on African American enslaved women right mm -hmm. and there was a question about how much mm. consent he got and to such an extent that his statue was removed from Central Park in 2018 mm. was it? Uh, yeah it was so I mean I think he's been roundly cancelled now yeah, Mr right. Sims yeah yeah he's not a, he's not a good guy uh, another guy. person famous in the history of smear tests is Anna Marion Hilliard mm -hmm. she was a Canadian physician uh, and the pap test was invented by this Greek guy um, but actually she invented the way that they do it in modern days because she made it much more simple and she made it in a way that any gynecologist or family doctor could do it without having to have loads of extra training so she's really really important in this story um, as well as being a physician, she was a midwife. She was one of the best women's hockey players in Canada in her day. Ooh. And there was a brilliant interview with her and um, they asked her about her life as a gynecologist. And she said that sometimes women would come up to her six years after their wedding day uh, and she would have to inform them that the reason that they still haven't had any babies is that they are still virgins. Whoa. Yeah. Sorry, when, when was this? <laughs> this was in the 50s. This interview was in 1957. Okay. They, they were like, why have I not had a baby yet? And they're like, well, let so, me tell you something about life. <laughs> That's leaving it too late for the birds and the bees chat, isn't it? Yeah. It's also very fitting that she played hockey because in terms of gynecological lessons, I was taught to apply condoms by putting them on hockey sticks by were my you? English teacher. Uh -huh. Yeah. Really? Maybe that was uh -huh. a subtle nod of my English teachers Wait, to this by your English? Why is your English teacher telling you to do this? <laughs> it comes up in Middlemarch, do you remember? <laughs> Dorothea has to pop, yeah, yeah, pop it on a hockey yeah, stick. Yeah, on cows are yeah. it's quite difficult. <laughs> Which oh, bigger, I thought hockey. Oh no, I'm thinking of ice hockey sticks. Oh, really hockey sticks. Which They're end still... of the hockey stick? Isn't the hockey stick d like 180 degrees curved at the yeah. end? Yeah. And, and your point yeah. being <laughs> <laughs> the gravy spoon, as uh, <laughs> we call it. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that ships can squat to get under bridges. That's really cool. Pop a squat and get under but bridges. They don't have any yeah. legs. They don't have any legs. Obvious response. No, they can't. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, so this is a pretty amazing thing. Basically, what they do in order to achieve the squat is they make the ship go faster. And when you move a ship faster, there's obviously a lot more water passing faster. And when it passes faster, particularly underneath the boat, the pressure decreases. And so the ship sinks further down into it. It sort of gets sucked to the bottom. Um, and that's how they achieve it. And they work out the measurements, they work out how much they need to go down, and that's the speed to which they move in order to gain that extra distance from a bridge. And we've seen it happen a so few cool. times. I mean, it's pretty crazy. There's a one of the biggest cruise ships in the world is called the Oasis of the Seas. And it needed to do this. It needed to get under a bridge that connects the Danish islands of Zealand and Sprogo. Um, so it couldn't get under at the height that it was at. And they did a few things like they had to collapse the tall standing funnels. <laughs> Can you do that? A, yeah, yeah. Some what? ships are built to do that specifically for bridges. Well, so you, yeah, I mean, but normally those ships are in bottles that can do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this case, this, this particular ship could, the Oasis Amazing. of the Seas. Um, but it still wasn't enough. So they needed to approach the bridge at 20 knots. Oh, my gosh. Um, so they did that. And if you get it wrong, then that's it. You're, <laughs> you're just, going really fast. You're going bridge, really yeah. fast into a bridge. But it managed to do it, and it made clearance by a foot. So they must have. I mean, 
imagine the maths for that, working yeah. out that this is exactly the right yeah. speed. That's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah. And- It'd be funny to be the ship's mathematician, just hearing this enormous crunch from <laughs> above deck and looking at all your notes and going... Oh, oh yeah. I didn't carry the one. <laughs> oh carry no. The one. <laughs> uh, yeah, that bridge is called the Great Belt Bridge, right, in Denmark. Yeah. Uh, and I checked out whether it has been hit in the past. It's been hit once since it was opened. Uh, and that was by Karen Danielson. Um, funny name for a ship it's that's the name of the ship you're joking no the mv karen danielson <laughs> uh, crashed into it in 2005 uh, and because you couldn't get any traffic across this is one of the main bridges from one of the most populous parts of denmark to the rest of it it basically cut the whole of denmark into two and no one could get oh from either word. side wow. um karen danielson as far as i can tell must be named after karen danielson who's a psychoanalyst because i can't find any other karen danielsons uh, she might be better known to you as Karen Horney. Uh, no. <laughs> Karen Bells. No, she's a really, really famous psychoanalyst um, who is like a feminist Freudian. Right. Uh, oh. And Freud has the theory of penis envy, right? That right. women are neurotic because they want to have penises and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. She invented something called womb envy in men. And she says that this is just as common, if not more common, in men. And men are neurotic because they're envious of women's ability to bear children. And whereas women fulfill their society simply by being here men have to achieve their manhood by succeeding in life mm. yeah. so that's Karen Horney that's that's well speaking of invention something I've always wanted to invent a name for the opposite of nominative determinism she's horny and so she's gone in the opposite direction she denies all the horniness that old Freud put forward yeah according to Wikipedia Horney was bewildered by psychiatrist's tendency to place so much emphasis on the male sexual organ crumbs what a good reversal would be for nominative determinism you could call it nominative determinism yes so it's being it's putting things off i whatsapped that to you a while ago just just sorry i whatsapped that idea to you a while ago Yeah, you did and as i said it i thought yeah (laughs) this bell went ding-a-ling of plagiarism alert plagiarism alert but i thought ignore the bell because it it was quiet enough that i thought What are the odds that I'm plagiarising someone in this room? I mean, <laughs> what? I'm really looking forward to your court case eventually, where when, when the accused stands up and explains what you've done, you just immediately go, oh, yeah. Oh no, you're right, I did. That, that bang. Oh. Yes. As I was stealing that loaf of bread, a little bell went off. <laughs> I thought there must have been a boy wizard called Harry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, can we go back to shipping, please? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's um, have a ship fact. What? Oh, okay, so you want to hear a cool uh, sinking ship fact? Yes, yes. Ship This is um, something I probably said three years ago, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> something that someone else said three years ago. <laughs> there are mm. ships called, I'm so paranoid now, semi-submersible ships. They're oh, called yeah. heavy lift ships as well. Okay. Right, any bells going off? No. no? Great, thank you. Um, what they what they do is they, they're designed to carry other ships or they're designed to carry oil rigs or they're designed to carry, you know, like, oh. en- like enormously heavy things, things that weigh tens of thousands of tons. Mm. And what they do is they, they're these weird, mad, huge platforms with, with towers at, at the corners. They, they, they float along. They then take on huge amounts of water as ballast, mm. millions and millions and millions of litres, and they sink. The ship sinks, uh-huh. and then the oil rig or the other ship or whatever floats over the top. Wow. And then the, so the submersible ship just jettisons all the ballast it took on and bobs back up, bringing the thing with it. Wow. It's like, nice. It's, it's, I'm, you know, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And they, yeah, some of them have feet to clamp onto the key as they're being loaded. So some <laughs> ships have legs. Um, they're just nuts. Did you guys ever read about the Sean O'Casey Bridge in, in Dublin? It was Sean a, O'Casey? Yeah, it was a bridge Again, that... Again, you see Karen Danielson, Sean O'Casey. Yeah. We just run out of names. I actually didn't look up who Sean was. I should have. Um, it's a bridge that, you know, would open in the middle. Oh, yeah. Um, but not long after they opened it, um, they lost the remote control that opened the bridge. <laughs> and they no, couldn't find it for four, so years. four years. Four it years, it didn't open. Were their ships stuck in a traffic jam? The backup getting worse and worse. That's a Some pilot needing to get in for dinner. Yeah. And they found it. They know they had to just get a new remote. Why didn't they do that after yeah. three years? It's a slightly confusing story because from what I read, the cost wasn't even that great. It was only like... Compared with the cost of a bridge or the shipping life yeah. of a nation. Exactly. Yeah. 
I sometimes a, do that, that. You know when you've lost, you know, you've lost your cheap headphones. You're like, I will find them. Yeah, yeah. I know they're in my room somewhere. It's, it's all in one small lounge that they've lost this remote control for the bridge. <laughs> they just need to look in the sofa one more time and it will be there. Yeah. My God. Um, um, in 2020, there was a Donald Trump boat parade oh, yeah. on... Oh, yeah. um, Lake Travis, which was in the Colorado River. Yeah. There were several hundred boats, all, you know, pro-Trump. They had flags and they were just having ah, a great yeah. day out doing, the, like, we, we support Donald Trump, whatever. Um, unfortunately, they generated massive waves and five of them sank to the bottom <laughs> of this lake. Wow. And it's, it was oh. a completely calm day. That's the thing. Oh, no. And this is due to a really bizarre shipping effect. So basically, there were boats with planing hulls which, as far as I understand it, is at above a certain speed, the top rises up a bit. Oh, yeah. And the boat is effectively riding its own okay. um, bow wave. The problem is that these boats, uh, if they all go at the same speed, they kind of act to, on each other. Oh, yeah. And the waves that they're generating at 10 miles an hour, which was the speed they had all decided mm. to go at, was the worst possible oh, speed see. to go at. That's and so they, they created this enormous set of waves, which they incredible. created their own storm, basically. Oh, God. That's incredible. I know, I know. If they'd gone at five, it would have been fine. They got at 20, it would have been fine. Or if, like, some had gone at five and some had gone at 10 and some had gone at yeah, 12. exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah, but because it was this parade thing. It's yeah, quite impressive. Terrible. If it had been intentional... That could be a useful naval military tactic, couldn't yeah. it? Better than the old sedan chair. How, how are we going to sink our own navy? Oh, yeah. like, what's, the, what's, what's the tactic here? You need Sorry? a mole. You need a mole. On yeah. The, on you the... need to infiltrate yeah. the enemy navy, don't you? <laughs> um, I was actually reading a bit more about the effect that you were talking about at the start. Yeah. And uh, so there are a few effects that ships can pull off. Another one is the bank effect. This isn't actually a good thing, but it's a very similar mechanism that Dan was talking about. So as you said, the ship goes faster and faster and the water in front of it is displaced, as we know, so you get that wave. And that creates a decrease in pressure underneath the ship, and that's called Bernoulli's theorem. But also, um, it can create a decrease in pressure in the water around a ship's sides. So if a ship goes too fast and then it turns a tiny bit accidentally or something, then the pressure will be decreased and so the ship will move to fill up that space of you know It'll decreased get sucked pressure in, kind get of. sucked in mm. and that means as soon as you turn a corner you can suddenly get sucked up onto a bank and wow. actually it's posited that you know the ever given that got stranded in the Suez Canal oh, yeah. Yeah. last year was it um, that that may have been what what oh, happened there just very quickly I was reading an article in Hawkeye magazine? magazine your favourite, favourite mag, mag. Yeah. yeah Anna's favourite mag but it was just an article about ships at sea and all the interesting methods that ships use um, for various different safety reasons and one of which is if you look at a photo of a ship at sea next time you see a photo yeah. have a look out for some people standing on deck sort right. of on lookout and that's two people sometimes one sometimes more they're looking out for pirates because that's a big problem when you're out at sea sure but the thing is is that they're not real people these ships have dummies that look like people who they just place on the side. Yeah, yeah. Scarecrows. Basically scarecrows, scarecrows. But yeah. But for pirates. But for pirates, yeah. yeah. cool. That was, I think it was, was in that article as well that it said about, there was a passing comment about the metal discs that you see when big ships are moored. Yeah. Um, and... Next metal, time you see a big ship moored, yeah. then you'll see that the rope's obviously tied around the um, mooring pole. Yeah. And then there's often um, a really big metal disc. It looks like a giant CD that the rope's woven through. In fact, I think that almost always is with big boats. Oh, yeah. And if it's not down by the mooring, it's up against the side of the ship. And do you know what that is for? Uh, no. No. So it like is. the big CD that you get in taxis sometimes is apparently they think that um, it will stop speed cameras from being able to catch you. It's not that, it that? I did not know that. <laughs> really? I was told that by a taxi driver once. I don't know if it's true. Right, okay. <laughs> oh, it doesn't work. I, that would have made me quite anxious in that taxi as he was going at 85 miles an hour in a 20. It's Just right, calm yourself down, drink some of that young boy's urine. We'll be there in a minute. Come on. So it's not that. Um, it's not that. Something, some safety thing. It's a, it's a rat stopper. Because yeah. oh, if a rat, obviously really? a huge problem on oh, ships, big problem in harbours. Rat can't run up that rope if you've got a big CD in the way. Brilliant. That's yeah. True. Yeah. It's amazing. That article just talks about all the things on the side of a ship. And I've never stopped to think about, well, I haven't really looked at the side of ships too much mm. in my time. But it's basically covered in graffiti for the various things that you need to know. So there'll be signs that will show you um, how far the ship can dip as a result of the weight that it's carrying. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. here are the certain lines that you need to be aware of. And the lines, there are different lines because if you're going to be in uh, salt water versus fresh water versus sort of like tropical water as well. Is that a well. plimsoll line or something? That's yeah, exactly it. Yeah, the plimsoll, yeah. Samuel plimsoll um 
And then there's lines to show you that sometimes boats have this little protrusion at the bottom of the ship at the front, which you would never see. Oh, yeah. So when tugboats are coming out to get it, there's a there's a little symbol. It looks like a five, but it's missing the top that says, watch out because you might smack oh, into something that. underwater. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's to stop the waves from, is it to help it aerodynamically or yes, something? It yes, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. to break, yeah. The, exactly. break the waves somehow. And it's pretty amazing that these giant ships are basically guided when they come into shore if they don't have a pilot doing um, the various like very very careful turning basically tugboats just tiny little yeah. boats yeah, yeah. yeah. because yeah. they can't turn it but those little things are able to shift an entire ship and a maritime pilot which i always think is quite yeah. cool that you have the pilots who wait in the harbors or at difficult channels like the suez and these are the real pros who just know that very specific area mm. of water yeah. and they leap on the boat and tell you how how to do it i saw that in action in sydney at the sydney harbor so i was having a drink outside the opera house and there was a cruise ship that was going out and that's a very hard turn that it needs to make by the bridge so they just have a pilot come on get it out yeah. and then he gets in a dinghy or a helicopter and just gets yeah. off the boat again that's it it's amazing yeah not dissimilar to airline pilots right they take off and land but then when they're cruising <laughs> and then they jump yeah, but... off in the middle they? <laughs> <laughs> they, get a little plane. they get a helicopter off the plane a nightmare um, one more thing about boats and bridges from me yeah. and that yeah. is about the Kinsey Street Bridge in Chicago oh, cool um, this is a bridge going over a river and the bridge is kind of it's mesh on the bottom right so it's to kind of make it easier to clean if anything falls onto the road it's just going to go straight down Great. do you know what I mean okay. it's like yeah, a yeah. mesh sort of because I was when you said mesh I was thinking of a sieve and they're the hardest things to clean <laughs> But I probably worked right. differently in this instance. Yeah, the holes are big enough that things can pass through, <laughs> right. like a sim. You're not going to get little bits of um, rice stuck in the column. That's not the main traffic on the road, it's just loose rice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, there's a band called the Dave Matthews Band. Yeah. Who, yeah. Yeah, you know, right? And they were gigging, and the guy who was driving their bus decided that he was going to dump all of their human waste <laughs> as he drove over the Kinsey Street Bridge. Because he thought, well, it's a mess, so it'll just pass straight through, right? Yeah. So he did that. This is in 2004. Uh, unfortunately, at the same time as he did this, a um, tourist boat was going underneath. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> Open top. Open top. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, and that instant uh, led to more than $300,000 in settlements, donations and fines. <laughs> Wow. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. And the Dave Matthews band always now has agreed to keep a log of whenever it empties its septic tanks. Keep a log, hey? <laughs> Logs feel like they were the problem in the first place. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that the art of wooden lacrosse stick making is extinct in the UK. Oh, is, oh, that, no. is that global warming? I said, <laughs> I said it in a cheery way. It was actually a very sad fact. Oh. Yes. Obviously, because um, you can't get a wooden lacrosse stick in the UK anymore. Well, you, you, mean, you can import a wooden you, lacrosse well, you stick. Can, yeah. You can import one. You can, you can buy an old one. You can, We've all... just done a whole section on massive ships. Do you know what they use massive ships for? It's <laughs> importing. This is a fact about... Um, basically, I was on the website of the, uh, the Heritage Crafts Organisation, which they're the advocates for traditional crafts. And they keep this amazing watch list of traditional crafts which are either fine, you know, sustainable, or uh, slightly endangered, or critically endangered, or extinct. And lacrosse stick making went extinct uh, in 2014. There's a firm mm. called Hattersley's, which is the UK's main lacrosse stick manufacturer. But their last wooden stick maker retired in 2014. He was called Tom Beckett. Huh, Thomas Beckett. Probably uh, well, not. no one rid me of this troublesome <laughs> lacrosse stick maker. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yes, they, how did he? Were... How did his life end? Actually, he wasn't murdered on the steps of a. He's still church, alive. He's still alive. Tom Beckett. There we go. Well, thank God. Still yeah. goes for a curry every year with the rest of the people at Hattersley's. Does he? Yeah. James, you've been in touch with them. I have. <laughs> <laughs> what a blindingly good guess. <laughs> I have. I was asking them why um, they have a, a stick called the Victoria Cross. But Victoria was with a K, and it's the best stick that they ever made. Uh-huh. And I asked them why they called it the Victoria Cross and why yeah. it has a K, and neither Tom nor David Hay, who's the head of sales, knew. Because it's all plastic these days. That's the sad thing. Is it? The, the lacrosse sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Cut the fibre. Yeah, and they're lighter and yeah, they're more yeah. efficient. And all well, that. one reason is because they yield on impact, because it's quite a violent sport, <laughs> um, lacrosse. And so if you hit someone across the head with a lacrosse stick, which is wooden... Yeah. 
they're going to do a lot of damage, yeah. but the carbon fiber ones bounce right off. God, oh. yeah. It's all gone soft these days, hasn't it? You can't even beat people <laughs> over the head with a stick anymore. Well, did you hear? Did you hear? I mean, that is an important thing. There was a guy in America at Wheaton College. Um, he's a he was we- a, sorry Wheaton College. Where were you educated? Wheaton Eaton College. <laughs> Eaton College. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, Wheaton College. It's the equivalent. It's twinned. It's twinned with Eaton. Um, he was a guy. He was nineteen at the time, called Alex Chu. It's the French Eaton, isn't it? <laughs> 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 um, he was up until this point playing lacrosse his entire school life for the school teams, and then he became a freshman at Wheaton College and was told he couldn't play anymore because his head was too big for any of the helmets. They just didn't make helmets big enough for this guy's head. <laughs> I think what he used to do was the reason he was allowed to play before was that he pieced together parts of two different helmets. He created a bigger helmet Frank for his helmet. massive head. It doesn't yeah. sound very safe. It's not very safe. You get safe. two cars and weld them together. That's really unsafe, <laughs> isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So he, so he didn't get to play. Wait, they sorry. had to so sit on the sides. Are, are the helmet makers of Massachusetts also extinct? Was there no <laughs> yeah, one available not, to I can't understand him... what the... No one built him a bigger helmet. He couldn't play. He played, I think, one game that season, and I think that might have been a mistake. You know what? He could have played women's lacrosse because they don't wear helmets in women's lacrosse. Ah. Why not? Because it's almost a completely different game. It's yeah, it's so, so weird. Odd. Yeah, they're different sports. Well, so so they say. I actually think they're really similar. But if you ask people who play lacrosse of either type, they say they're really different sports, don't they? Yeah. And they don't really do the body contact so much in women's sports. So the men's lacrosse is incredibly violent. Basically, you can right. essentially just attack someone with a large stick. Um, as long as it's not deemed to be sort of like unduly, really intentionally aggressive, I think. Um, whereas in women's, you can stick you can stick people. What do they call it? Stick, stick people. people? Uh, Slashing and stick check. In women's, you can stick check, so you can hit their stick with your stick, oh, but you okay. can't really bash them around the face. Could you hit their fingers holding the stick with your stick? I think you can do that. Oh, and yeah. I should say, in men's, actually, you can't bash them around the face, but the torso, free for all. Golly. It's really interesting. And it's all down to a woman called Rosabelle Sinclair. And what happened was. So lacrosse is an old Native American sport. Uh, They played it in America, uh, but it was in the early 20th century. Girls weren't really allowed to play lacrosse. And so it was an all-boys sport, pretty much. They came over to the UK and had an exhibition in front of Queen Victoria. So this is a bit earlier. And Queen Victoria said it would be a great game for girls to play in public schools. And so they started playing it in public schools. And so you had this one spot in the UK, which was all girls playing in school. And you have this one spot in America, which was all boys playing. And they've kind of evolved quite differently. And then Rosabelle Sinclair took the girls game over to America. But she decided she was going to stick to the girls rules that they had in the UK. And so that's why now in America, it's almost like netball and basketball. Not quite, but they're quite different sports. Right. That makes sense. And I'd love to see a team of traditional women's lacrosse players play the men's. Because just FYI, if you're an American listener, lacrosse in the UK is pretty much, I think, reserved for... Well, this this is an anecdote. This is just based on my own life experience. But (laughs) in my own life experience, lacrosse is basically reserved for very posh schoolgirls. And in America, (laughs) it seems to be reserved for extremely hardcore large men. So... I was talking to someone the other day, um, a friend of mine who played a little bit of lacrosse, and she said it is quite violent. Still, yes. the women's yeah, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's pretty primal. That's pretty fun. Um, so the kind of aggression of it, I think, kind of makes sense for the origins of it. So it was played in the 1500s. Native Americans did it as a way of kind of battling between local tribes, didn't they? They they sort of they would have games that would last for days, and the teams could be anything from five players to over a hundred players. And it was you turn, it was you just... turn up with your four mates. <laughs> oh. oh no, they've they've gone for the opposite actually. In many ways. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's kind of the origins of it, isn't it? And yeah, you know, there's there's one claim on the World Lacrosse Federation website which says that sometimes games could involve up to a hundred thousand players. It's so clearly bollocks, oh isn't it? <laughs> Uh, but that's what it claims and they're the authority that is amazing it was certainly common to have over a thousand people and I suppose it, 100,000 just... was it war or was it like, no. were they fighting well we, we don't 
That's still a big wall. Yeah, it is. On one side, you've got lacrosse players coming, sedan chairs on the other. That's the time travel. It was actually one team of five and then another team of 99,995. And it was a draw. It was a draw in the end. Amazing. That's mental. Wow. Yeah, but it was like, it would be over vast distances so Native Americans would be you know running between states practically and people subbing in and out quite a lot I think over many days it is the only sport that recognizes Native Americans and First Nations people as their own individual nations so they Mm. will you know in international games you would enter as an individual nation like the Mohawk Nation Um, and in fact that caused a real problem they travel on their own passports so I think the Iroquois lacrosse team travels on Iroquois passports um, Iroquois and Haudenosaunee, by the way, are sort of synonymous, except they call themselves Haudenosaunee. But um, yeah, the passports tend to be recognised. There was a bit of an issue in 2010 when Britain denied entry to the Iroquois team because mm. they didn't accept their passports. They wanted them to have US passports and they said, well, we don't, we don't consider ourselves American. Right. They didn't play. Wow. Lacrosse might come back, by the way, to the Olympics. It is coming back. Yeah, because it's such a growing sport, isn't it? So 2018, they were given the status of um, yeah. receiving funds, which meant that they could sort of like start showing that it was possible. They're and, now an official, whatever the official sport of that you need to be in order to get to the Olympics, they are now that. Yeah, so they'll be there for the 2028. Yeah, yeah hopefully. Really? Yeah, to speaking of, um, this is just something I read today um, about hockey. So it must be the same with lacrosse. And that is that if you're a sports person in Canada, you're doing your sport, you're getting really sweaty, all your gear, your your mitts and your, you know, your shirt and everything, your underwear gets really, really smelly, but you can't put it outside to air, right? Because it's so cold. And so traditionally you find that these people have really, really smelly, like clothes and kit and stuff like that. And so they invented this thing. I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a big... Uh, sort of trunk and you put your kit in and it Mm. fires uv light into the trunk and then that makes ozone and the ozone kills all of the bacteria and when the bacteria has died it means it can't make all the smells and so you it kind of gets rid of all the smell of your kit and this is the amazing thing what they hope in the future is they might be able to scale this up to the size of a room and so you would come in after your game of hockey or lacrosse or whatever (laughs) you'd hang up your stuff you go out of the room, close the door, and when the last person closes the door, the whole place gets filled with UV light and ozone. And then when you come back in, it's all clean and not smelly That's anymore. Wow. Isn't that amazing? So might we have these instead of bathrooms in the future? Instead of a shower? Oh we'll my, you know what room. I thought? Because I read this article, and what I thought is it could be useful for putting your underwear in right you know mm-hmm. like if you have a linen basket or something mm. get changed at night take your underwear off put it in the basket next morning yeah take it out again brilliant. it's fine yeah that's perfect. brilliant yeah. you don't need clothes anymore basically you don't need more than one of everything. just one set of clothes for yeah, the rest yeah, yeah. of your life yeah yeah and one set of night clothes if yeah you, exactly if you i mean you can you can also put your clothes in a washing machine and a dryer um <laughs> yeah but that's two <laughs> combined it's a combined system you use loads of water can't do it at night because it upsets your neighbors <laughs> I do it literally every night. Oh my god! Well, put oh your washing god. machine what? on. Yeah. Oh my god! He's psycho. It's all right. He lives in a cottage on the m- top of the mountain. <laughs> in the moors. Yeah. Um, um, what you can t- also do oh, is take your clothes to a tanning salon, presumably. Yeah. And drop them off what, and ask book, them to book, put, a, book in a session. <laughs> book a bed. Book a bed and you come and you take all your clothes off and they go, well, if you'd like to get in, you, you say, gotta, no, 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 no. You've got to be sat on a chair naked next yeah. to it. <laughs> I'm going to climb into a washing machine now. <laughs> You've got to make sure all of the employees know that that's happening because I don't want to open a sunbed just see the missing body. <laughs> oh my God, it's no. happened again. <laughs> She's melted. <laughs> Um, can we talk about some extinct crafts? Oh yeah, cool. sure. Yes. Um, so I was on the—I spent quite a while on the the Heritage Crafts website. Patron Prince Charles, obviously. Um, so I thought I'd do a little quiz for you. Okay, right. Is this craft endangered, uh, critically endangered, currently viable, or extinct? Okay. Okay. Just before we start, yeah. you sent us the link of this list. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We all have a bit of an advantage. Yeah. We might still do badly. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it literally open in front of me right now. <laughs> Shit. That's, okay. I'll close I'm, it. I'll close it. Okay. I never bothered to read the sources you sent around, so Thank I'm you. coming to this naive. All right. Orrery making. 
Orrery. So an orrery is like the solar system, right? Exactly. It's a model of the solar system. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. (laughs) Because, oh, yeah, it's in every kid's toy shop. You've got to make them for kids. I'm with Dan then. He has insider knowledge here. (laughs) Okay. So you're you're saying viable. I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, Okay. Probs. Probably 200 of them (laughs) in North London alone. There are 100,000, actually. (laughs) They all play lacrosse. Um, No, it's critically endangered. There's one full time professional orrery maker in the UK. Well, he's doing a damn good job. Once you're seeing toy shops, Dan, I'm not sure made by the real handmade heritage. Mechanical, mechanical. Fisher Price plastic ones. Mr. Fisher, he's the last one. Timothy Staines and his father, Derek, who was the previous full-timer, they make six to ten of these Timothy Staines, by the way, is a sentence name. Oh, so it is. Welcome to the club, Timothy. Um, Rake making. Is oral babes a sentence? No, it isn't. Is it? <laughs> Sorry. No. What were you saying? Rake making. Rake making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, everyone needs a rake, don't they? A garden, a garden implement, not a bit of a slimy, sleazy <laughs> lad right. about town. No, okay. No. Um, then there's loads of them. Yeah, I loads of them. At least five. It's endangered. Oh. Yeah, there are only about 5,000 made per year. There's specific kinds of rake, not just normal garden yeah, rakes. Okay. One more. Rocking horse manufacturer. Viable. Mm. Extinct. Yeah, viable. It's viable. Okay. There is a guild of rocking horse makers, which has 2,000 members. <laughs> the only qualification is you have to have made a rocking horse, to be, which is fair enough, to be a member of the guild. Um, yeah, but You don't have to have made it in the traditional age-old sculpting method. I imagine there are some barriers to entry about what qualifies as a rocking horse. You can't just make any old shit and say it's a rocking horse and then claim your guild membership. No, you have to. I'm sure. Yeah, but I don't know exactly what the criteria are. Level of rock or whatever. I read this incredible article. Did any of you read it? It's called Raiders of the Lost Crafts. It was in The Independent in 2016. Raiders of the Lost Crafts. And it was written by a woman called Amalia Ildner. And she talked about, um, so pole leaf wood turning, which is, you know, when uh, old crockery used to be wooden. I didn't know you had wooden crockery. And uh, most people would because it was just the most available substance. So back in Tudor times for instance probably not I thought crockery was like the noise it made got that it's probably like blockery or something (laughs) blockery yeah yeah woodery I mean blockery is a joke woodery is just (laughs) it's not can't wait to hear Andy make that joke again in three weeks time I'll tell you what when I tell it you'll laugh Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Schreiberland. James? (laughs) Bit weird, but James? (laughs) At James Harkin. And Anna? You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at Andrew Hunter M, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. There's also a link to the upcoming tour dates that we're doing uh, later this year. Do check them out and see if we're coming to a place near you. Otherwise, you can listen to us again next week on this channel, on this podcast. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.